0: Well, uh, last week we looked at David the musician, and it was a a different sermon uh, where we talked about music from a very high perspective and then honed in on the life of David. Well, this week it's going to be much more verse by verse. We're going to be really just in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. It's going to be different because there's a lot to cover of narrative. God gives us a story here through these two chapters, and so it'll kind of be like reading the story together. We just pause for my commentary along the way, and that's what we're looking to do today to cover 1 Samuel 18 and 19. But before we get into the text, how about I pray, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. We thank you for this church and This group of people that you've put together, God, we look to our savior Jesus today and we ask that you'd make us more like him. That as we have received your grace in salvation, that as we continue to be saved, you would continue to conform us to the image of him. Lord, help us today to uh, see what it is that you have for us in your word. That as we look at the life of David, we would uh, connect the dots by your Spirit's power, and that we would make application to our life by your working in us. Help us as we do this, and we ask together that I would not get in the way of your word, but that your word would be clear to your people today, and that we would all grow together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, leaders are often polarizing, aren't they? If our American elections are telling us anything, cycle after cycle, it's like leaders are getting more and more polarized, meaning you either love each one or you hate each one, it kind of seems. If you ask somebody about the two presidential candidates once that all gets finalized uh, this year, someone's gonna have strong feelings one way and strong feelings the other way. That's just kind of how it works today. And even though it feels like it's getting uniquely worse and worse, It's really not the first time in history that that's happened. In fact, I would say uh, America has been exceptionally unique in many ways through its history where we haven't always fought with each other over leaders. And we've been able to uh, live together in somewhat harmony through many years. Um, Now things do seem to be going back in a more common direction when you look at world history and how these things tend to go. But leaders, just by the nature of the position, are often polarizing, not through any effort of their own, just based on the fact that they're leaders and have opinions, they're very polarizing. And as we look at the life of David, as we know, David is on his way to becoming king. He's not yet king, but he's on his way. He may appear quite polarizing, that in his time, you either love David or you hate David, and it was 50-50. But that's not really the case. David really only had one enemy, he only had one real enemy. The problem is, the enemy he had was his predecessor, the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the nation, hated him. And through Saul, that king, through his influence, more and more people were affected through David's life in turning against him. Well, we've seen David as a musician, and we've seen him as a warrior. He was essentially an unknown shepherd boy from Bethlehem. But now that we've looked through a little bit of his story and we've seen him defeat Goliath and we've come here to this place, 1 Samuel 18, we now see him with some popularity and with some prominence and with some respect and power. And it's so true that if you want to learn about a man or if you want to learn about yourself, see how popularity and power is handled. I think we all know those people who a little bit of authority has gone straight to their heads. Well, if you want to see what a man is really like, give him some power, give him some authority. And in this context, in David's life, as he is gaining in power and popularity, his real training begins. Eugene Merrill, in his commentary on this, summed it up this way. David, he had learned responsibility and courage by confronting and slaying wild beasts that threatened his flock. He had learned to play the harp, a skill that would make him sensitive to the aesthetic side of life, and that would help him compose the stirring psalms which extol the work of the Lord, extol the Lord himself, and celebrate his mighty exploits. David had been brought into the palace of the king as musician and warrior so that he might acquire the experience of statecraft. Statecraft being governance. David is now at the point in his life, we're joining him at the point in his life where he's learning through basic training, God's basic training, what it will mean to be king. And learning governance is really learning people. And boy, does David learn some people. Much like Joseph, David is brought through ups and downs on his way to rulership. It's a roller coaster ride, and we are joining him on that roller coaster ride. Today, as my voice just got a lot louder. (laughs) Well, let's look at a scene now that will set the course for the Saul David relationship for the rest of Saul's life. Let's go to 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. I'll read the first nine verses. Now, it came about when he, when David, had finished speaking to Saul, this is again after he killed Goliath, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." "'It happened as they were coming "'when David returned from killing the Philistine "'that the women came out of all the cities of Israel "'singing and dancing to meet King Saul "'with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. "'The women sang as they played and said, "'Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. thousands.' "'Then Saul became very angry, "'for this saying displeased him. "'And he said, "'They have ascribed to David ten thousands, "'but to me they have ascribed thousands.' Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. So what we're dealing with here is a a jealous king. We have a jealous king in charge of Israel. Now let's go back and look at verse 5 that I just read. This jealous king, though he was very envious for all the power and wanted all the authority and all the attention and all the popularity and all the prominence, he could not help but notice that David was very prosperous. It was just undoubtedly true that David was a very effective man. When it came to going out in war, when it came to seeking victories for Israel, David was the guy you wanted leading. He was undefeated. He was made for leadership. And that's exactly what it says in verse 5, where, wherever Saul sent him, David went and he prospered. So Saul set him over the men of. Of war. Everywhere David went, prosperity followed him. And the second half of verse 5 shows us that the people agreed. It was a no brainer. Everyone said, yeah, that's a really good choice. David is out there making Israel great again, you could say. And he was so popular and so effective that they wrote a song about him. He has slain his tens of thousands. Saul, of course, only slain thousands. It was a very famous song. It was a popular song. We'll find out later in 1 Samuel that even the Philistines knew this song. It was like a number one hit of the day. So every time Saul turned on his radio, there's that song again, just (laughs) grating at his nerves. So Saul was angry. Look at verse 9 again. Saul was angry. He was displeased, and he looked at David with suspicion from that day on. That really sets the course for this relationship. Saul was very threatened as the king. That's because he was very fleshly as the king. He was a very worldly king. He wasn't a godly king. He was thinking only in terms of the flesh. He, of course, was prideful at heart. That's the underlying issue here. And therefore, he was unwilling to embrace, unwilling to appreciate what God was doing. And this is always the case. If you struggle to appreciate what God is doing in the world, if you struggle to Have joy for other people because what God is doing in their lives. If you struggle to rejoice with those who rejoice, pride is at the heart of that. That's what's keeping you from recognizing, embracing, appreciating the will of God. And it's so interesting how Saul's son Jonathan provides an immediate contrast here. Back up in verse 1, we see that the soul of Jonathan was knit. To the soul of David. And next week, we'll look at that relationship between Jonathan and David. But how interesting that Jonathan, who is the heir apparent to the kingdom, he's the son of the king, he had his armor, he had his robe, he had his bow, he had everything he needed as the prince, the king's son. He willingly yielded all of that to David. He recognized what God was doing. What a contrast we don't see pride bound up in Jonathan's heart, but instead we see humility and we see faith. S.G. de DeGraff, commenting on this passage, says, This deed on his, Jonathan's, part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be the lesser. That's a good sentence. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against the Christ, who is truly Israel's king. That's a good word. Well, the prideful and emotional King Saul takes things from bad to worse as he continues living on feelings, let's pick it up in verse 10 and see where he goes from there. Verse 10, it says, Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out And came in before them. Well, back up in verse 10, we see that this spirit returns. We've encountered this spirit before, an evil spirit from God. And before, I've given you a couple of options for how you can interpret that. But I believe this is a demonic spirit. I believe that there's a demonic spirit that has been under God's control, being sent by God to torment this king that God had rejected. God ordered the spirit to terrorize his reject. You see, Saul had rejected God already by disobeying him. You remember that whole to obey is better than sacrifice stuff? Saul disobeyed God. He didn't kill all the Amalekites. He didn't completely wipe out, as God had said, all of the Amalekites. But instead, he did what he thought was best, and in so doing, he rejected God himself. Well, now we see from that moment forward that God rejected Saul. Saul is king of God's nation, but he's living under God's judgment as a reject of God. This is a very weird situation, isn't it? This is God's people, Israel. This is God's nation, and this king was appointed by them, and yet God has rejected him. Let's go back to chapter 15, just a page or two here in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, starting at verse 22. This is where Samuel confronted Saul about his disobedience. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, and we'll read down through verse 26. It says, Samuel said, "...has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams." For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, "'I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord.' But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. He's a man under God's judgment. David is subordinate to him. He has to be. David is not yet king, Saul is still king. Even though David is God's choice for king, it hasn't happened yet. Saul still has the power. And because he's rejected by God, because he is under God's judgment, there's this spirit terrorizing him. Back at verse 10 of chapter 18, an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. And what did it cause Saul to do? To rave in the midst of the house. So this is a big sign here about someone being under God's judgment. Here's a big sign that someone is rejected by God. That God either allows or directly sends an evil spirit to terrorize the person. That's exactly what was happening to the rebellious King Saul. Well, inspired by a spirit of death, we see in verse 11 that he tried to kill David. And I would say that as the people in the house were witnessing this, as David himself was experiencing this, it's more likely that they interpreted it as Saul's madness They perhaps didn't see it directly as Saul's malice against David. Because Saul had these fits, didn't he? The evil spirit would come and he would rave. And you can just imagine some of his servants saying to one another, the king's having a bad day today. It's it's one of those days. And he was having one of those days when David was there. And perhaps if they wanted to look at this situation in the most optimistic way, they could say, well, it's not anything against David. Everybody loves David. He, He just, you know, is acting out. He's going a little cuckoo, perhaps, and that's why he did it. But David escaped, it says, verse 14, he escaped and kept finding prosperity. And as he found this prosperity, he was more and more hated by the king. So ironic, so absurd. The more that David would do to help the nation, the more the king of the nation hated him. How messed up is that? It's not the only time in history this has happened, is it? Well, of course, David had to wonder why. You can read through some of the Psalms as we'll do here today. And David asks God why and asks God how long until God takes revenge on his enemies. And, and if you were in David's spot, how confusing would this be? You're doing everything you're told. The king is telling you where to go and you're going. You're, you're given your mission and you're successful. And the more that you're doing, it seems the harder life is getting. The, the more obedient you're trying to be, the more difficult life is. You ever experienced that before? <laughs> the more you're pursuing God, the more you think you're on the right track, the more opposition there is in life. It's exactly what's going on with David. What is the answer, anyway, to why God does that? Why does God allow that? Well, I think as we read through the text, it's clearly because God wants us, day by day, more and more, to see our dependence on Him. God wants us to understand just how dependent we are on Him. Let's look again at a couple of verses that I've already read. Verse 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David because Yahweh, the Lord, was with him. Verse 14, David was prospering. Why? Because the Lord was with him. If you drop down and glance at verse 28, it says again, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, was with David. Over and over again, the text is communicating to us that God was with David. And as God was with David, he of course wanted David to understand his absolute dependence on him. In his commentary, Dale Ralph Davis says, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. Here David is in the middle of all kinds of trials, and what evidence he has that God is with him, that he's still on his feet, that the Lord is with him, as the text says over and over again. And I think this is what is at the heart of David's training for king. This is David's basic training for governance in Israel. And what is at the absolute center point of this is that he is dependent on God. God protects us. He provides for us in ways that we do not see, in ways that even if we could see, we wouldn't understand. We don't understand all the things we see, don't you know? He provides and protects all the time. We are so, so dependent on Him, and so many of David's psalms really bear this out. Well, the emotional king, the jealous king who was in charge, Saul, he then, from this point, uses his own family. He uses his own children as pawns, He's really a, a sick guy. And he tries to give David his daughter Merib. And David refused. He says, I can't be the king's son-in-law. I'm just a nobody. I, I can't do that. Well, the same day, he picks up another pawn and chooses Michael. Well, let's pick up in verse 20, where Saul tries to offer another daughter. It says, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. So Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law, Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down two hundred men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins and gave them in full number to the king, that he may become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael his daughter for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually." Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. (laughs) Oh my, what a weird, weird guy, huh? What a strange guy Saul was. Well, let's back up a bit and just go to chapter 17. Let's look at one verse in chapter 17 that shows that Saul is going about this all wrong. In verse 25 of 1 Samuel 17, when Goliath was still out beating his chest against Israel. Remember, David was asking the men of Israel, what, what should be done whenever someone kills this Philistine? And the men answered and said in verse 25 of chapter 17, they said, um, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free and Israel. That was Saul's word before. There was not to be a dowry. There was not to be a bride price for David for killing the Philistine. But how good is Saul's word anyway? We're finding out that like a share of Enron a number of years ago, Saul's word is not worth much, is it? Maybe like a vote in Maricopa County, it's just not worth a lot. Well, so since Saul couldn't kill him, David, Saul led him to the Philistines, it says in the text I just read. He was to go and earn his dowry by getting a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That was the price that was set. Whoops, that didn't work, did it? It says that David turned in his assignment early, before the days had expired, and he did twice as much work as the teacher had directed. Everywhere he went, David prospered. He didn't kill 100 Philistines. He killed 200 Philistines. And ignoring the purposes of God and ignoring God himself, what does verse 29 tell us? In reaction to all of that, Saul was even more afraid. Shouldn't God's people like rejoice at something like this? Shouldn't all of Israel and the king leading them have been celebrating the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God Saul grew more afraid, and he was David's enemy continually, it says. Well, this is just irrational. But don't you know that fighting the will of God is irrational, isn't it? And it usually shows itself. You want to know if someone's fighting the will of God? It usually shows itself by irrationality. When we reject God, and we reject God's will, and we reject God's word, and we reject God's promises, we are eventually reduced to utter absurdity our lives are a contradiction. We make excuses that aren't really excuses. We feel things and we act out in certain ways that go totally against the way we were designed to feel and act. It's irrational, totally irrational, to fight the will of God. And anybody who does fight the will of God, anybody who pushes back against the creator of all things, should really be rebuked, rebuked by the word of God rebuked by the authoritative voice of God who has made them and called that person. Let's look at Psalm 2. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 2, the second psalm of that 150 song songbook, was written by David. And he goes into this very issue. We read through this last week. David asks the question, why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. You think Saul was in David's mind here? I would say so. He experienced this firsthand. They're against God and His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Who sits in the heavens, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. And down in verse 10, he writes, therefore, O kings... Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. That's the rebuke. That's the call that goes forth, not only to all people, though it does apply to all people, but it goes forth especially to rulers and kings who are fighting the will of God. Refusing to embrace the reality of God, refusing to embrace the reality of the will of God truly does reduce people to absurdity. And in the case of kings, in the case of rulers, it can reduce entire nations to absurdity. You look around in our nation, you look around in other nations and wonder, this is insane, how is this happening? We're rejecting God. We're rejecting the will of God. We're rejecting the word of God. We're rejecting the promises of God. We're being reduced to utter absurdity. We're being reduced to irrationality. Down is up, and up is down. Bad is good, and good is bad. And it will not last. It will not last. So David is living in a very confused nation because their leader is utterly, utterly confused in his fear. Well, he gets more direct in his strategies. Let's look down at chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants, to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Well, so now Saul has moved to just a direct hit order. It's just time, we're just going to take him out. He's not veiling his intentions anymore. It's time that we just kill David. Well, Jonathan, who delights in David, as it says in verse 1, was pleased to step in. Humble Jonathan, faithful Jonathan, the one who delighted in David, Because he delighted truly in the Lord. He steps in and he stops his dad. And now his dad, King Saul, makes a vow, which we know how good this is, right? He makes a vow and says, Oh, I won't do that. I won't do it. Well, that bucket doesn't hold much water, as we see in the verses that follow. But Saul now goes back on his order for a moment. And Jonathan runs into David and catches him up on what's going on. So David is now back in the palace, he's now back in the presence of King Saul. And let's read, starting in verse 8, about David as a humble king in training. He's been battling more successfully, he's been playing the harp more, and now there's more danger. It says in verse 8, When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. <sighs> well, David was just too good. He's just like an eel. He couldn't, couldn't grab onto him. And you do have to wonder what Saul's walls looked like, don't you? Uh, man, as one commentator said, he tried to nail David to the wall, and instead he just nailed the wall. And that had to happen over and over again. In his frustration always throwing things and causing a ruckus. But we see once again here in David's life that following the Lord will take us to some pretty uncomfortable places. It will take us back to places that we, we thought we were done with. We thought we were past that. David was on the run and now he's back in the palace. He thought he was done dodging spears and he's back dodging spears again. And all he's doing is following the Lord. We have nothing here in the narrative that would point to David getting off, of, off the track. We have nothing here that would indicate that David was being faithless. He was following the Lord, and the Lord took him right back to this situation. So even when you are doing nothing wrong, it may be God's will that you are in that uncomfortable place again, as God shows you your dependence on Him. And this uncomfortable situation is even more uncomfortable for David this time, because as it says, at the end of verse 10, David fled. From this moment forward, David is a man on the run. David is going to be fleeing over and over. He's being chased, he's being hunted down by his king. He's a man on the run, and he's learning more about people and more about God. Well, let's keep reading. There's more danger and more deliverance in David's life. Verses 11 to 17, it says, Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. (laughs) When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? Okay, well, sometimes God's deliverance comes through some pretty strange circumstances, huh? And this is one of them. And isn't it interesting? It's another one of Saul's children. In this chapter, we have two of the king's children running cover for the king's enemy. And the king's enemy is the protagonist in the story it's just all kind of out of balance from the way it should be and i think god wants us to see that in the story this isn't how it's supposed to be but this is what pride does this is what sin does well michael another one of saul's children helps david even with lies even with her lying and i wouldn't advocate helping god's people the way she does. I wouldn't advocate having a household idol the way she does either. What was that household idol doing there? Well, it's just a part of dealing with fallen people, isn't it? But David is delivered by God's power. And what's really amazing about some events like this in David's life is that the story doesn't end there, even though in 1 Samuel we move on to the next thing, we can actually turn to the book of Psalms and see David's commentary on this situation. So keep your finger here, but turn with me to Psalm 59. Turn forward in your Bible to about the middle of your Bible. And Psalm 59 is the psalm that David wrote right after this incident. David, of course, as we've established, had a musical instinct. And the heading above Psalm 59, verse 1, it says that this is a meekdom of David. We talked about meekdoms last week a little bit. It's a meekdom of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So this is a very early psalm of David from that time in his life. And I'm going to read through all 17 verses. Listen to David's inspired heart-pouring. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on a highway from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Selah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. My God and his loving kindness will meet me, God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride, and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, they go around the city, they wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. What an amazing song. And he wrote that after he had to go out of his own window, as he had to run away from his own house, his own kitchen. He had to to leave everything that was comfortable to him. He was on the run, and he says, As for me, I will sing praises. I will sing praises to the God of Israel. Well, if you thought that story was a little strange... This chapter gets even stranger. David is on the run. Where would he go? He goes to his trusted mentor, Samuel. And this is the last passage in 1 Samuel that we'll look at this morning. And this is a weird one. I'm just telling you, buckle up, prepare yourself. It's pretty weird. He seeks Samuel, his trusted mentor, who was a refuge that just could not help this time. And let's read about how this all went down. Verse 18, now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel At Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is at Seku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he proceeded there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Woo! All right, well, interesting, interesting story. What we have here is basically Saul and his servants being trapped by the Holy Spirit. They're like flies going into honey. You know, they say you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Well, here's an example of the sweetness of God, the, the Holy Spirit of God, with the amazing power of prophesying that He gives, catching Saul and his servants. And that is just so, so interesting. Again, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says, "...the means of deliverance must never eclipse the source of deliverance." And sometimes the deliverer makes that point abundantly obvious. (laughs) And this is one of those times. Samuel wasn't doing anything. Samuel was presiding over the prophets. The prophets and David himself, they weren't doing anything. They were just prophesying. They were minding their own business. And these enemies of God come along and join them. How strange is that? They start prophesying because of the work of the sovereign spirit. It says there in that passage I just read that Saul stripped himself of his royal garb. And it's possible that he was not nude, but that naked here has reference to without his royal garb, without his kingly clothes. And he laid that aside just like his son Jonathan did. Now Saul did, but he was forced to by the Spirit. And David, of course, in light of all this, was very confused. If we just dip our toe into chapter 20, look at this, chapter 20, verse 1, David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? Very natural questions that this roller coaster just keeps going. And David has done nothing wrong. Well, this seems so chaotic, doesn't it? Seems so, so chaotic. Yet through it, of course, God is teaching David more dependence on him. That's very key. But also God is exposing the character of David. And he's building up that character that's being exposed. Two aspects are very clear about David's character here. One, that he was a man of faith. And two, that he was a man of humility. Think of the faith that David had versus Goliath. It took so much faith. To step out against that Philistine. And the faith that he had in that situation has not been depleted through all of this. Through that experience, David has maintained that faith. And through this roller coaster ride with the king, he keeps looking to the one who is with him. Yahweh is with him. God prospered him in all of his ways. God was with him. And because of all of those evidences, David couldn't help but have faith in the God of Israel. And yet we see great humility too. And these two things do go together. If you're a person of great faith, you will likely have great humility and vice versa. His humility is seen in that he respected Saul. He went back to the palace after the spear was thrown at him. He knows that Saul doesn't like him. Comments have been heard. And yet he stays in his presence. He remains quiet. David doesn't protest for his rights outside of the king's hall. But instead, he goes in and serves the way he's been commanded to serve. He considered himself not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. He says, I am lightly esteemed. The one who's on the radio, the one who killed Goliath, who has slain his tens of thousands, David is lightly esteemed. I almost hate to make the comparison, but I'm going to. It's like the Taylor Swift of his day. (laughs) That popular... That popular, always on the radio? He was very highly esteemed. It said so, as we read at the end of chapter 18. David was highly esteemed, and yet he considered himself lightly esteemed. What a humble and faithful man. But I don't want us to end there today. I don't want to stop there. It would be you know, possible to stop there and to say, David was awesome. But I don't think David would want us to stop there either. Because David was surpassed in these character traits by his son. And I don't mean Solomon. I mean the capital S, son of David. The son of David, Jesus Christ. The son of David who saves us. And if we desire to emulate to any degree the faith that David had, the humility that David had, we don't look to David. Because as you keep reading the story, David's going to fail you. David was not a perfect man. He has some sins that come to the surface that we'll see as we go through this sermon series. But if you look to David's son, if you focus your attention on the son of David, you will be able to grow in faith. You will be able to grow in humility because Jesus himself had these qualities. And unlike David, Jesus knew what he was going to face through life, and he willingly went through it. Jesus knew that there was a cross waiting for him, and he willingly went to that cross in obedience. And the end of Jesus' obedience is salvation for us, not a kingdom for Israel, but salvation for us. We are the benefactors of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. I'll read to you 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 21, and, and consider these words, really dwell on these words of Jesus' character. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, very important verse. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Truly man and truly God, Jesus entrusted himself perfectly to the only God. He too, of course, was a polarizing person who caused division. People didn't know what to do with him. Some people embraced him. Other people were dead set against him. And he didn't do anything wrong. He was absolutely perfect through and through. Consider this passage from John 7. It's the last passage I'll read to you. This is John 7, starting at verse 40. It says, some of the people, when they heard these words, were saying about Jesus, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that The Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. A lot like David, isn't it? On the run, causing division. But Jesus perfectly lived his life and never did one thing wrong. And this conversation we just peeked into in John 7 sounds a lot like a conversation that may have been happening among Saul's servants. Yet Jesus didn't have King Saul as his enemy, he has Satan as his enemy. He has Satan as the one who's absolutely opposed to his purposes. And I think the question that you have to ask yourself, the question that you have to consider, is whose servant are you? Are you like one of Saul's servants? who is opposing the will of God, who is rejecting God's will, who is on your way to irrationality and total absurdity for opposing the reality of God and His purposes in life? Or are you a servant of the Son of David, the one who looks to Him and says, He's my master? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ, the one who kept entrusting himself over to God and died in your place for your sins and rose again on the third day that you would be saved by his grace through faith alone all because of God's grace and if you're in that latter camp if you are a follower of the son of David you can look to God for his provision and protection just like God was with David God will be with you You can keep entrusting yourself following in Jesus' steps as Peter encourages us to keep entrusting yourself through the ups and downs of your life when God leads you to those uncomfortable situations, maybe for a third, fourth, fifth, hundredth time. You can recognize that God is with you and keep depending on the goodness of God, the truth of God, the Word of God. You can walk humbly by faith as you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Isn't that good news? You look at David's life and you think, boy, that was tough, but how how could anybody get through that without God? Well, David didn't go through it without God, and you don't have to go through it without God either. He's yours for the taking because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you so much for the reality of your presence, the reality of your will, and your purposes. God, help us today to come into submission, to come under your authority more and more, and to ask you with a heart of faith to touch our lives in such a way that creates greater dependence on you. Lord, this is a bold prayer. It's a scary prayer, but it's good. Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts because of what you've already done through the work of Christ, that you continually create in us hearts of faith, hearts of humility that seek to serve you with all of life. God, we love you. We thank you for the example that you've saved in Scripture of David and ultimately the son of David. Help us to hang on your every word by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.